Grab your Bible, if you would, and open with me to Luke chapter 12, page 871, if you are using one of the Bibles under the seat in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that as your own. If you like that Bible better than your Bible, feel free to take that as your own. Or if you know someone who doesn't have a Bible, or maybe you know three or four someones who don't have Bibles, feel free to grab a few of those and take those with you. As you're turning to Luke 12, just a, a note of housekeeping. Uh, tomorrow morning, our 2022 summer interns will be beginning their journey with us through the summer. And uh, we've got four pastoral interns that will be with us. And for the very first time, we have a Kidman intern who will be with us as well. So a total of five interns spending the summer with us. And you're going to be seeing them a lot at Kid Check-In. They're going to be doing announcements and welcome on Sunday mornings when we gather. They'll be teaching adult Sunday school. You'll be seeing them around. Let me just uh, remind you what an encouragement you are to them as they prepare and as they practice and as they get experience and try new things. Um, Your encouragement, your smiles, your encouraging words to them. Uh, your affirmation goes a long way. And I know that many of them, years from now, as we already have dozens of interns who are in other parts of the country uh, ministering and serving in all kinds of different contexts and different churches. And uh, I know what we hope for and pray for is that they would look back with fond memories on their time at CCF, the things that they learned and the way that we encourage them. Knowing that that's really a part of our vision. Our vision, as you remember, is more, are more healthy churches than a larger CCF. And that's one of the ways we do that, is by equipping and training and sending out. Because the interns we have this summer, within a few short years, will be sometimes less, for some of them, less than that. It'll be a year from now, and they'll be in other churches, other parts of the country, serving and leading and ministering. Uh, it'll be a joy to have them with us. All right. We come to Luke chapter 12. Jesus is in the middle of teaching. According to verse 1, there is a massive crowd that has gathered. And in the middle of all of this, Jesus turns towards his disciples and he warns them about several things. So in verses 1 through 3, he warns them about hypocrisy. In verses 4 and 5, He warns them about fearing man instead of fearing God. In verses 7 and 8, he warns them about faithlessness. And these are not soft issues. Jesus is preparing his followers for what life will be like as they live each day as a Christian, knowing that it will not be easy knowing that they're going to face temptations, knowing that they're going to face persecution from the outside, and he is preparing them for what is to come with really important truths. And right in the middle of all of this, someone in the crowd shouts out. Look at verse 13. The word of the Lord says, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, if you're taking notes this morning, we're going to have three kind of main points. This is the first one. This is the problem we could call this. This is a problem. And if you've ever 
preached, if you've ever taught, if you've ever facilitated a group discussion, if you've ever worked in kid ministry in a classroom, you likely have had something similar happen to you. You're in the middle of of unveiling these glorious truths from God's word, pointing to things that transcend our time and will last for all of eternity. And the right in the middle of all of it, someone speaks up with something that is comparatively so insignificant. And teacher, she got more goldfish than I did, right? I've had the joy of preaching regularly for 19 years now. And in that time, there have been... Uh, more times than I can count where this type of thing will happen. Sunday service will conclude and I will have done the very best I can at opening up God's word and heralding the glorious, timeless realities of God's precious, holy word. I'll get done and I'll talk to someone and the very first thing they'll say, sometimes they'll come up right after service and the very first thing they'll say is something that's so seemingly insignificant by comparison, like, Hey, who cuts the grass? I noticed they missed a whole strip out front where we park. I'll think, did you hear any of this? It's glorious realities of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you're worried about a strip of grass out front. Certainly that's never happened here at CCF. But that's what's happening here. Jesus is heralding these glorious realities And in the middle of all of it, there is a man who is so consumed by this inheritance issue that he misses everything that Jesus has just said. In fact, he asks asks this question about an inheritance dispute, but there's actually a deeper problem in his heart. And Jesus, seeing this man's heart, addresses the problem in verse 15. The problem is covetousness covetousness to covet is to long for or to desire that which you do not have and what's implied from a theological perspective in coveting is you are longing for and desiring that which God has not given to you or entrusted to you sometimes we use Synonyms like greedy or grasping or insatiable or envious. Those are all fair words to communicate what covetousness means here in verse 15. Again, this man has the Son of God in the flesh speaking the very word of God. And all he can think about is getting his fair share of the inheritance. He's fueled, consumed by his covetousness. Like Martha in Luke 10, who was distracted by much serving, this man is distracted, but it's by much desiring. Notice Jesus does not address the legal matter. In verse 14, he said, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? Rather, he sees into this man's heart and he addresses the heart issue. He gets to the bottom line by giving them this principle. Verse 15, and he said to them, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness. For or because one's life does not consist 
in the abundance of one's possessions. So this is a warning. Be on guard. Watch out for. Pay careful attention against. Now these are the words that we would use when we send off maybe our 16-year-old son or daughter with a car for the first time. Be careful. Be on guard. Watch out. Or these might be the words that we think as we're walking through a, a dimly lit, sparsely populated parking lot at night. Or these might be the words that a coach tells a player right before going on to the field. Hey, watch out for, be careful of, pay attention to. And here, the principle Jesus gives is to be on guard against all covetousness. Or we could say, be on guard against covetousness in all its forms. It's interesting that there is a danger here bigger than not getting your fair share. That should jump out to us on the page. Jesus does not address this issue of inheritance and this man getting his fair share because there's something deeper, there's something more insidious at the heart level. And I think that's good for us to hear even in our day and time when we are consumed with justice. Justice is a good thing. But there is a sin deeper than injustice. And that is a heart that is not satisfied and contented in Christ alone. A heart that always wants more. A heart that covets. And given Jesus' words here, notice he says to take care and be on guard, I think it's safe to conclude that covetousness is not a sin that self-resolves. It's not a sin that just goes away the longer we walk with Jesus. No, it's, it's a sin that we need to be on guard against whether we've walked with Jesus for 15 minutes or 75 years. Because covetousness is sneaky. It grows up in our heart almost unnoticed. It's kind of like the trash that accumulates in the glove box. And you don't know it's there until one day you're trying to find your sunglasses or something. You open the glove box and you're like, whoa, where'd all this come from? slowly accumulates over time. Covetousness is like that, which is why this warning from Jesus is so appropriate both for them then and for us now. Watch out, church. Be on guard against all forms of covetousness. Now, a good question to ask would be, why is it so important to take care against covetousness? And after all, isn't the liturgy of our world, in other words, the consistent catechism that we are being taught by our world, isn't it that you are what you drive or you are what you possess or you are how you appear or you are where you live or you are where you go on vacation? Isn't that what the ads on our phone tell us, the commercials on our TV? I mean, they're not ultimately selling us products. They're selling us an identity. If you buy this, this is how the world will look at you. If you own this, this is how you will feel about yourself. If you go here on vacation, this is the experience you will have, and this is how it will change you. This is why it's so important for us to take care against all forms of covetousness. Because Jesus says here, the reason 
that we need to take care is because one's life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. Now, it might be easy for us to amen that here and now this morning, but what about the next time you really want that something? Or you see someone who has something that's a little nicer than yours or a little newer than yours or just different than yours. Maybe even this morning you were on your way in and you saw, oh, I really like that car. I've already been thinking this morning, okay, if I trade in mine, what could I, how could I get that? Or maybe you, you walked in and you were perfectly content until you saw that she was wearing a new outfit and you thought, that, that's amazing. I would love to have that. Maybe I could look like that too. Or maybe you heard about someone's vacation plans for the summer and all of a sudden your vacation plans that you were so excited about just a few hours ago now all of a sudden seem sort of, sort of chintzy and trite. You see, the, the temptation to covet, to desire that which the Lord has not given us is something that is common to all of us. It's something insidious. It's something that, that sneaks up without being noticed which is why we need to be on guard, take care against all forms of covetousness because life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. I mean, I think it's obvious, but it's worth saying again, just because our actions, if you're like me, don't always reveal that we believe this is true, but you are not what you possess. You are not what you wear or what you drive or where you live or where you go on vacation. That's not to say that possessions are wrong or possessions are bad. We're gonna see that in just a moment. It's not wrong to have possessions, but we can get into lots of trouble when possessions have us. When they hold our heart and our desires and our passions, we begin to spend so much time thinking about how we can get this or how we can shop for that or how we can dream of, if only I could go there on vacation. Like this man, we can become so focused on our thing that we miss out completely on those things which are so much more important. The sneaky deception of covetousness is widespread. And Jesus uses now a parable to illustrate just how sneaky it can be. You remember parables are stories that are designed to make a point. They're designed to make one primary point, although they can have some subpoints to them. That's where Jesus goes next in verse 16. Look at verse 16. And he told them a parable saying, <clears throat> The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool. This night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? 
This is the story of a wealthy farmer. We get the idea that this is not just a subsistence farmer. He's not just farming to provide for his own needs. Rather, we get the idea that this is a man who is in business. He owns land. He owns probably lots of land. He's in agricultural business. He's already rich. The problem in this parable is not that he is rich. The problem in this parable is not that he is successful or that he had an excellent harvest. In fact, the biblical storyline includes all kinds of people who are used by God who are wealthy. People who, to whom God has given great financial means. And they use that for kingdom-related purposes. And the problem was not that he built bigger barns. Again, the Bible speaks of the value of planning ahead. Like We could maybe point the finger at him a little bit because it seems like he waits until the harvest is done and then decides to build bigger barns. Like Maybe you're waiting until the last minute here. But again, the Bible speaks about the value of saving and planning ahead. So what's the problem? If it, The problem is not that he's rich or that he had a bumper crop or that he built bigger barns. What is the problem? And the problem was that he was short-sighted. He failed in a few important ways. First, he failed to acknowledge God. Something in this parable that we could miss because so few of us are farmers but would not have been missed by Jesus' audience is the fact that farmers go out and they till the soil and they plant their crop, but they are 100% dependent on two things for which they have no control, sunshine and rain, two things to which God has complete control. This farmer was 100% dependent upon God. And yet 10 times in this parable, the businessman refers to himself. I, me, my. 10 times. He was operating under the tragic illusion that he was the self-sustaining source of his income instead of God. And we can do the same, can't we? We can, think, we can think that our savvy or our skill or our experience or our education or our ability to network and interconnect, being at the right place at the right time, those are the reasons that we have what we have and we are where we are and we do what we do. Rather than recognizing that everything we have comes from God. I just think about the past week. How much for you was this past week lived thinking that you were the source of the food that was put on the table or the roof over your head or the clothes that you wore, the gas that you put in your tank? How often were you worried or anxious over things to which you have no control or very little control but things for which God has complete control? Like where this past week did you try to get what you wanted and even maybe compromised your integrity in the process because you failed to trust that God is the one who is on the throne and who will accomplish his purposes in and for you? Like this man, we can fail to acknowledge God. We can fail to remember that God is the source of everything we have, even our very lives. 
belong to him. Anything good that comes our way is owing to God. Because this man here in the parable failed to acknowledge God, he also then failed to live in light of eternity. Look at what he says to himself in verse 18 and 19. He said, I will do this. You can imagine he's looking out over his crops that are being brought in and he recognizes his barns aren't big enough and he's thinking out loud to himself, I'm going to tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. What's missing? Well, God is missing, but also any sense of that which eternal is missing completely. This man has been extravagantly blessed by God. And what does he do? You know what? I'm going to build bigger barns. And the reason I'm going to build bigger barns is so that I can store all of this as an even larger security net, security blanket, so that I might be able to eat and drink and be merry and not worry about a thing. Live for myself completely. He turns his material blessing from the Lord into something for 100% leisure and entertainment and amusement. Now, to be clear, it is not wrong to enjoy the good gifts that God gives. Even to enjoy the good possessions that God gives or the good vacation that God provides for. But what is wrong is when we fail to consider how our gifts could be used to accomplish things of eternal importance. It's wrong to completely be self-consumed to the point at which we never think, okay, how could these blessings be leveraged for that which will last for all eternity? That which is kingdom-related. Failing to think of the needs of others. Failing to think about the ways that we could give our money or possessions to help someone else or to further the work of world missions or to faithfully contribute to the ministry work of a local church or a gospel-centered ministry. Like tragically, this wealthy agricultural businessman thought that his stuff could provide for him the security and peace that he longed for. It's a heart issue. He did not say, I can enjoy life because God is my refuge and strength. He said, I can enjoy life because I have ample goods laid up for myself. What can happen to me now? I can just live for myself. And how easily we can do the same. We can look for our security or our peace in our stuff or in our 401k or in our bank balance or in our portfolio or in the things we own. And this man clearly found his security in his possessions rather than God, which is ironic, isn't it? That that very night, his soul was required of him. It's ironic that even his own soul was something that he did not own as he looked out at his vast wealth. Even his own life was not his own. 
God required it of him. Verse 20, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? What a haunting question, isn't that? In the end, the things that we strive for, in the end, the things that we're so anxious about, in the end, the things that we are so distracted by, the things that we long so much for here, today, right now, in the end, whose will they be? Our sons and I will, from time to time, go to the Montgomery County Solid Waste Facility. And usually it's like the dishwasher that's broke and beyond repair and you can't leave it out at the street for the trash people because it's too big. And so throw it on the trailer, throw it in the back of the car and take it to the solid waste facility. If you've never been there, it's quite an experience to go. In fact, if you like tractors and earth moving equipment and big things and trucks, it's probably an exciting place to go. It stinks. It's a high heaven. smells really bad. But there's row after row after row of trucks and trailers and people who are with both hands heaving television sets and electronic equipment and furniture and clothes and all kinds of stuff just heaving it out of the back of trucks into this massive pile. Big earth movers moving it to the back of the room and it getting smashed and squashed and then I don't know what they do with it for sure. But it's a sobering reminder just to stand there and to look at that pile of trash, every single one of those things, by and large, are things that someone at one time probably desired and coveted even and worked hard to purchase and to buy, thinking, this will, this will satisfy me. This will change me. This will make a difference in my life. And maybe in some small way, some of those things actually did. But to recognize that in the end, the things that we work so hard for, and the thing that in the end, the things that we try to work so hard to maintain and, and to long for and to covet are going to end up in a trash heap somewhere, smashed and destroyed. You might be thinking, well, not, not my collection of this, because my children are going to cherish this. Certainly, for always, they're going to cherish it. But I've been around enough estate sales and had enough family members and loved ones pass away to realize that in those moments, more often than not, your beloved, cherished collection of whatever also ends up on that pile. We shouldn't be surprised by any of this. For 2,000 years ago, Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where the earth movers smash, right? Where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. <clears throat> because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And there we have it. We're back to the heart issue, aren't we? This man failed to acknowledge God. He failed to live in light of eternity. And notice, he also failed to think scripturally. He failed to think scripturally. Self-talk 
can be dangerous when it's not shaped and informed by Scripture. And just look at the self-talk of this agricultural businessman in verse 17 and 18. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones there. I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Brothers and sisters, self-talk is dangerous when it is not informed by Scripture. When our imaginations run wild and our thinking is not shaped by the Bible, but rather our minds are shaped according to the pattern of this world. This is the mold our sinful flesh is trying to press us into. Live for the now. Find your identity in what you own and what you have and what you can purchase and how you look. And without the scriptures and without the Holy Spirit, we will be all too happy to comply. Why not just live for ourselves? Why not pursue the American dream? Graduate well, work hard, retire early, and go live the rest of your life to gratify your pleasure. Isn't that the American dream? Work hard in school. Why? So then you go to a college. Why? So then you can get a good job. Why? So you can make a lot of money. Why? So that you can retire early. Why? So that then you can go just live your life for 100% your own pleasure. Why? Because one day, like this man, every one of us will stand before the Lord and give an account. And on that day, the only truly thing that will matter are those things that are eternal. Chief among them, first and foremost among them being what did you do with Jesus? Are we by faith trusting that Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross in our place for our sin? Are we living for his approval alone? Are we living to honor him alone? Are we finding our identity in him alone? Friends, that is the treasure that moth and rust cannot destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal. That's what the word of God conforms our mind to or transforms our mind to rather than being simply conformed into the American dream of just having more so that you can more and more just live for yourself. Like how countercultural would it be if we are truly being transformed according to the pattern of scripture that we would approach each day thinking, how can I invest today? And how can I invest these resources? And how can I invest the, this time most faithfully for the glory of God and the joy of his people? How can I invest my career? How can I invest my income? How can I invest my possessions? How can we use and steward our home? How can I invest and use my retirement? Not to just live 100% for myself, but use my retirement years now as a fresh opportunity to all the more invest in those things that will not fade. 
I wonder what this man's obituary would read. Here lies Mr. Barn Builder, the agricultural businessman who achieved great wealth. And upon having his greatest crop of all time, two nights ago, tragically and suddenly passed away of unknown causes. His entire estate is now left to his children who are already fighting and arguing over who gets what share. Or maybe it would say, Mr. Barn Builder, the agricultural businessman, suddenly and tragically passed away last week of unknown causes. Two nights ago, in a lightning storm, his entire crop was destroyed when his barns were burnt to the ground. We know what the Lord would say of his obituary because we have the answer in the text. Fool. Isn't it interesting that all of his self-talk Here's what I'm going to do. Here's why I am successful. Here's why I deserve to eat and drink and be merry and only think of myself. Isn't it interesting that his self-talk was so at odds with the reality of what God said? And in the end, it was only what God said that mattered. Remember Jesus' words a few months back from 9, Luke 9, 25? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? And I think it's striking that this section in Luke is followed by a section on anxiety. What is the thing that we most often are anxious of? Isn't it things, money? so I think there's a warning here for all of us in this text. The warning is here for those of us who have so much and yet can so easily become distracted, so easily can turn inward and just want to live for ourselves, gratify our own desires, live for our own pleasures, never thinking of God, never acknowledging God, never thinking of that which is eternal. The warning here is for us. To stop and to consider God and to consider our ways before we stand for him, before him one day and give an account. But the warning isn't just for the rich. It's not just for those who have. Because there are two fools in this section of scripture. The first was likely a younger brother who in that day and time would have gotten only half the inheritance of the older brother and perhaps the older brother who would have been the the steward of the estate didn't even give him his inheritance. So perhaps this is a poor man who shouts out and is so consumed by his desire for the inheritance that he completely misses that of eternal value that's just been communicated to him. So the warning is not only for the rich, the warning is for all of us who desire for more. All of us who think, if only I just had this, I would be satisfied. And that's the terribly tragic thing about covetousness, is it's never appeased. It's never satisfied. Oh, we can get addicted maybe to the very 
act of purchasing something so much so that we, we just love buying something whether we need it or not because we love the feeling we get when we have something new. But it doesn't last. Sometimes it doesn't even last until we get home and we begin to think about, oh, I actually wish I would have gotten this instead. You see, if a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions, then how can we, according to verse 21, learn to be rich towards God? Let me offer three ways as we close. How can we learn to be rich towards God? First, we should remember God. We should remember death. Even if it means from time to time going to a cemetery. From time to time going to the Montgomery County Solid Waste Treatment Facility. Remember where all of the things that we tend to be anxious and worried and troubled about and the things that we tend to covet are so consumed by where that leads in the end. So we should remember God. We should remember that which is eternal. We should remember that our life is short and eternity is long. Secondly, we should remember that we are stewards and not owners. I mean, God rightfully owns everything anyway. That's so clear in the parable. This man who had an abundance, had more than probably anyone else that he knew, and yet tragically, he didn't even own control over his own life. And friends, neither do we. No matter how healthy we think we are or medicated we think we are or fit we think we are, in the end, you you don't control the beating of your heart. God could decide in seven seconds, your life here on this life and this world is over. You have no control over that, none. None. We should remember that we are stewards and not owners, which means everything we are and everything we have is entrusted to us by God, who is the rightful owner. We can't hold on to any of it. But we can make an eternal difference in the time and the energy and the talent and the skills and the possessions and the money that God has given to us, where we can be rich towards God. But our temptation, as Pastor Nick Runlet was helpful to point out this week, our temptation is to be rich towards self and stingy towards God. We don't need any help to do that. That's our temptation anyway. And so we need to continually have the Word of God, the Holy Spirit of God, to continue to reshape our mind and our thinking and our priorities and our spending patterns and our time management, so that we're continually evaluating, am I living like I'm an owner, or am I living like I am a steward? And this will make a difference in our financial decisions. We'll learn to be less impulsive, maybe. Or we'll learn to think and to spend in light of eternity. Maybe being more thoughtful, more prayerful about our financial decisions or our budget. Again, this does not mean that you cannot enjoy good things or nice things. 
But it means that before we spend money or before we set out our monthly budget, we ought to stop and consider eternity and to remember God and to remember that we are simply stewards of that which does not belong ultimately to us. We tend to be so much more careful when we don't own it, when someone else owns it, and we know that we have to turn it back in. If you're married, I think this means getting the counsel of your spouse. It's interesting, oftentimes in marriage, one spouse is more generous, more giving than the other. I'll be the first to admit in our home, there are lots of times that Tara will say, oh, I bought this for so-and-so, or I went and got this, I thought so-and-so could really appreciate this. And sometimes my first response isn't hallelujah. It's, okay, can we afford that? Okay, is that, well, but I, I really wanted to buy for myself with that money. So how can we work together, husbands and wives, to to stretch, to be more generous, to be more giving, to be more faithful with the resources God has provided to us. If you're not married, let me encourage you to find godly men and women in the church, maybe in your small group, maybe in your discipleship group. You can say, hey, I'm thinking of spending some money on this. Would this be wise? Or even to say, hey, here's my budget for the next month. Does this reflect kingdom priorities? I think as we grow as a church more and more in love with Jesus Christ and more and more committed to one another, those kinds of conversations will seem less weird and more natural as we're seeking to spur one another on to greater levels of faithfulness. Think about how our material blessings can be leveraged for eternal purposes, purposes that moth and rust cannot destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal. How can we give to the work of the church? How can we give to biblically-based, gospel-centered ministries around the world? How can we invest in needs, as even so many of you invested yesterday, your time and your money, in the Miami Valley Women's Center, the cause of life? If you're a parent, think about the money you spend on your child, not just even for their basic needs, but Sometimes their desires or their wants or their music lessons or their sports fees or their camp fees. How do those things reflect kingdom priorities? How are our resources being used for things that will last for eternity? Friends, don't just blindly pursue the American dream of ease and luxury and financial peace. Because ultimately our peace is not found in our finances. Instead, ask regularly, how can I at this time in my life steward my time and my talents and my resources most faithfully for the glory of God? And it is such an encouragement to me that so many here at CCF, you're already doing this. Like, I want to thank you for your faithfulness in giving to the work of the Lord, your faithfulness in giving to the work of missions, your faithfulness to give to the work of ministry here, locally at CCF. Regularly reminded of that. We regularly remind our kids of that. CCF is is a generous church. CCF is a joyful church. 
That's where we remember God and we remember that we are stewards, not owners. And then finally, we remember to give joyfully. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. There's no advantage to us to give grumbling, give begrudgingly, well, I guess I should, or I wonder what people think of me if I do or if I don't. But the Lord loves a cheerful giver, a giver who says, okay, everything I have is from the Lord. Everything I am is from the Lord. And so I joyfully give back to you now, Father, gladly, willingly, with a smile on my face, because you have given so much to me. Would you stand with me? Let's pray.